I don't know if anyone has seen the film, The Shawshank Redemption. Hands up if you have. Oh, good. Good chunk of you. Um, it actually completely flopped at the cinema. I don't know if you know that, uh, but ended up being a real hit on DVD. That's got no relevance at all. Just a bit of useless trivia for you there. But in the, in the Shawshank Redemption, there's a character by the name of Brooks. Uh, if you want to click on there we go. Um, now Brooks was a man who committed a, a terrible crime as a young man and who was sentenced to the vast majority of the rest of his life in, in prison, in this horrible, harsh world of, of Shawshank. And he learns to live within that environment. He learns to follow the rules. He learns to survive. And he learns to, to, to do whatever he needs to do to get through that sentence and eventually earn his own freedom. And finally, as this old man, as you see here, he, he comes to the end of his sentence and he is released into the world for the first time in, you know, 50, 60 years. Except this day when he comes out and he gets freedom, it doesn't turn out quite as Brooks hopes. And he, he quickly finds that he can't handle life on the outside world. He gets a job, um, but he's treated very, very harshly by his new employer. Um, and he just finds that the world that he left behind going into the prison all those years ago is nothing like the world that he now comes out into and he finds that actually he's grown comfortable and grown to know that all you know, all his life was was restriction and constraint being told when he could go to the toilet and when he couldn't being told when he could exercise and when he couldn't and he'd grown comfortable in that life and to the extent that he became what they say in the film is institutionalized and unfortunately he just can't reconcile himself with this new freedom that he has and within a few weeks sadly tragically brooks uh, commit suicide and he realizes that he'd been so conditioned by his past so conditioned by his life of of, of slavery really to, to restriction and to law and to rules and regulations that he, he's unable to actually embrace his future and his freedom and this week as we reach the climax really or the start of the climax of, of Galatians um, in chapter 5 we see Paul utter the immortal line that it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And freedom, clearly for us as a church, is, a, is very close to our heart. It's, it's, it's our vision, it's our name, and it's something that we really want to instill in, in each other and in this, in this city. And all the way through this book, Paul has been contending with um, those people in the, in the Galatian church, which he calls the Judaizers, the people who are speaking to this new church, these new converts in, in, in Galatia, and are trying to place restriction on them when actually they've been set free by their new relationship with Christ. And they've tried to insist that even after they've become Christians, even after they've become uh, followers of Jesus, that they still need to obey Jewish laws and Jewish customs, things like circumcision, things like ritual uh, purification, things like food laws, which actually Paul says and Jesus says, you don't need to follow these anymore. These aren't part of, of my plan for you. You are free. And last week, Matt preached, and we saw a bit of a shift away from Paul, where he's been spending most of the book having a pop at these Judaizers, telling them, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you've got it all wrong, you need to understand the gospel. This, and then last week, we saw Paul turn and start talking to the church themselves and saying, you need to understand your new identity in Christ. You need to understand that you are sons and heirs, you are adopted, the Spirit is in you, crying out, Abba, Father, to have that relationship with God. And, and this week, we've got a mixture of the two. We, we see him attacking the, uh, the, the Judaizers again, but also trying to really communicate something to the new Christians about what it is to live 
in freedom and to enjoy this new life that they, they've been given. So let's read this passage together um, and I'll pray and then we'll, we'll crack on with this, this message. It's quite a long, a long passage, I will, I will say. Um, so we're going to cover it in quite broad brushstrokes and I hope you'll, you'll follow it with me. Okay, so we're going from uh, chapter 4, verse 21. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as the result of a divine promise. Now these things are being taken figuratively. The, wo- the women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar, and I'll unpack all this for you in a second. Now Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free and she is our mother. For it is written, Be glad, barren woman, you who never bore a child. Shout for joy and cry aloud, you who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit, and it is the same now. But what does Scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. And therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children. We are not children. It's chopped off the end there, isn't it? <laughs> we're not children. Uh, we're not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. Thank you. And then into chapter 5. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. And you who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision or uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith, expressing itself through love. You were running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion, whoever that may be, will have to pay the penalty. Brothers and sisters, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. And if you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. Let me just pray before we move on. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the Bible, the word you've given us to, to live by 
and to understand you and to get to know you better. And I pray this morning you will be upon us as you speak to us, Lord. I pray you'll speak through me. You'll let my words um, minister to your people, Lord. You'll communicate through me what you want to put on people's hearts this morning. And I pray this morning we will come out of this room changed by you, knowing you better, loving you deeper. And, uh, yeah, just ask that in your name. Amen. Okay. So there's three main sections, three main points that I want to cover this morning. The first one, oh, look, we've got numbers one, one, and one. That's uh, my formatting. Really good there. Before anyone points it out. I'll, I'll, yeah, <laughs> technically it's a one-point preach. Um, just to show I can do it. Um, so the first one is that freedom is in our blood. That's, that's the, the end of chapter four, which we'll be looking at in a minute. Secondly, is that freedom is very easily squandered. That's the start of chapter five. And thirdly, that in living free, we bring freedom to others. So firstly then, freedom is in our blood. And this is where we're in the back end of chapter four, if you want to follow this. And this, it's a bit of a complicated uh, illustration that Paul introduces here. And he talks about uh, the Old Testament in Genesis, the story of Abraham and his wife Sarah and his servant Hagar. And what he's trying to do here is illustrate to us that freedom is in our very blood. It's in our very DNA, our background. It's from our very roots. So in Genesis, we've got the story where God has sovereignly, graciously chosen Abraham, purely because of Abraham's faith, to be blessed through the generations. That's God's big plan. He's going to bless Abraham's offspring. He's going to give him descendants that number the stars, and they're going to be a blessing through through history. But in chapter 15 of Genesis, Abraham spots a little problem with God's logic. He's, He's knocking on a bit in years, and he hasn't actually got any children yet. He hasn't got any offspring to be blessed through. And his wife's pretty, uh, pretty aged as well. Doesn't look like she might be in the shape to, uh, to give birth to a baby anytime soon. So how is God going to bless him? How is God going to give him all these descendants that, numer- uh, that number the stars in the sky? But God promises him, your offspring, your descendants will be numerous as the stars in the sky. And Abraham believes God. Well, I say he believes God. Actually, he finds it quite hard because of the reasons I just said. His, his wife is old. She's barren. She's never given birth. And presumably, looking at her, he couldn't possibly believe uh, that she could give birth to a child. It was highly unlikely, probably highly dangerous for a woman of Sarah's age to, uh, to have a child. And Abraham and Sarah couldn't see how this was going to be possible. So together, they embark on a plan. Abraham has a slave girl, a girl called Hagar, and she's of childbearing age. And they cook up this plan that Abraham is going to get her pregnant She'll give Abraham a child, and through that, God can then bless them. God can bless them through the generations, give all these descendants, number them as far as the, as the, as far as the stars in the sky, and that'll happen. And so with the full backing of, of Sarah, who actually later gets pretty teed off about it, uh, Abraham gets Hagar pregnant. They have a, a baby. His name's Ishmael. And they think, this is it. We've got it sorted now. God can, God's plan is, is going to happen. But God has other ideas. In chapter 17... He tells Abraham that Sarah, actually, is going to be the one who has this baby. She is going to be the one who gives birth to Abraham's heir, through whom the nations will be blessed. That Ishmael is not the child through which God wants to work his plans through, but he's going to give Abraham and Sarah their own son. And whilst they think it's beyond belief, by God's sovereign power, miraculously to this old, old lady, Isaac is born. And the rest, as they say, is history. But Paul uses this story to communicate to us something really profound about the roots of our freedom as Christians. For Paul, the story about freedom goes all the way back to this story of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar. And what he does is he sets up some comparisons 
uh, between Sarah and Hagar and Ishmael and Isaac, which help us to understand which side we belong to. You need to click again there, Tom, sorry. That's it. So if you look at Hagar, Hagar is a slave. She's not a free woman. She's not someone who is enjoying the freedom that, uh, of life. She is, she is, she is under Hagar, uh, Abraham's mastery. And in the end, she's basically, essentially, she's forced into having this child by Abraham. That's not a situation, really, as a son you want to be born into. And Ishmael, effectively, then, represents Abraham's attempt to achieve God's blessing. God's given Abraham a promise, but Abraham wants to play his part in it. He doesn't see how God can fulfill it. And as a human, he says, you know what? I'm going to have to make this happen myself. So I'll sort this out. I'll sleep with Hagar. We'll have a baby. And then I've done it. There's a a role that Abraham wants to play in, in God's plan. And Paul links this back to Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai being the place where Moses received the law from God. And Paul, all the way through Galatians, has been talking about the law has been used by Jews throughout the years to enslave themselves. That, that law has been all about trying to measure up to God's standards and climb that ladder of holiness up to God to keep as many laws as we can, uh, to be as holy as we can, to, to earn our own salvation. And Paul says this, this side of, of, of Abraham's family, Hagar and Ishmael, they're linked. They're linked to Mount Sinai. They're, they're under slavery. They're under law. They're not free. And so Ishmael wasn't born into freedom. And Paul says this, this, is what the current, this is linked to the current Jerusalem. The current situation in Jerusalem with the Pharisees and these Judaizers who are coming to speak to you in Galatia and saying you've got to obey this command, you've got to obey these food laws, you've got to obey all this and that. They're under Ishmael. They're under Hagar. They belong to that side of, 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 uh, of Abraham's family. And that, you Christians, that is not your bloodline. That is not where you stem from. That is not where you, where you originate. Whereas on the other hand, we see Sarah. Sarah was a free woman, Abraham's beloved wife. I think they're a wealthy family. She had the freedom that, that life afforded to her. And she was blessed with childbirth by God. That child, Isaac, was born into a happy, blessed home with freedom. And he was God's blessing, and God brought it about. They could not have brought Isaac into this world without God's blessing. And so Isaac was born into a world of freedom. Freedom was in his very, uh, in his very blood. And Paul says that is linked to Mount Zion. Mount Zion being God's promised place, God's place of rule and blessing where we'll be at one with God, where we'll be under him, where there'll be no more pain, no more suffering, no more sorrow. The Jerusalem above, the new Jerusalem, the place where God intends us to be in freedom with him. That is what we belong to. That is what Paul is saying. You Galatians, whether you started out as a Jew or you started out as a Gentile, if you're a Gentile, you've been grafted into that inheritance. You've been grafted in to Abraham's side of the family with Sarah and Isaac, and you, you, you inherit that promise. You're part of that family. Freedom is in your blood. Does that make sense? Wait, are we following this? It is in your very blood. And we can see how this links back to the very message in Galatians. Ishmael was Abraham's attempt to steer God and play his own part in his own salvation and God's big plan, rather than letting God be God and do as he promised. Abraham tried to engineer God's blessing. And so for Paul, the Judaizers Judaizers are linked to that side. But on the flip side, Isaac, for Abraham and Sarah, was a free gift from God who opened them up to the fulfillment of God's divine promise. They couldn't possibly have had Isaac by their own means but God blessed them with it as only he could. And for Paul, that links us right back to Jesus because Jesus, again, 
is God's free gift to us, achieving something that we could not possibly achieve by our own merit, which is our freedom from sin, our freedom from death, our freedom from judgment. So when we come to freedom, if we're followers of Christ, we are under Isaac and Sarah. We are free children. It's in our blood. And that is the message that Paul is giving. He's saying there were two covenants for the, for the, for the, the Jews that were important. There was the Mount Sinai covenant, which was law and, and obedience. And there was the Abrahamic covenant with freedom and God's plan for the generations. Does that make sense? Freedom is in our blood. That's the first part this morning. The second part then, as you get to the start of uh, chapter 5, here we see Paul returning to his central issue, making sure that the Galatians are not caught out by the lies being spread by the Judaizers. And Paul is so worried about these lies setting in and spreading, and he likens them to yeast. So it's a, an illustration that Jesus used a lot as well about yeast, how you only need a little bit of yeast to work through a whole batch of dough, and, and, and it all explodes and becomes, becomes a lot bigger than it was at the start. And he's saying, you need to be on your guard here because the lies that the Judaizers are spreading, they're like yeast, they'll work through you and they'll, before you know it, they've overtaken and you're robbed of your freedom. And he delivers that immortal line for freedom, Christ has set you free. But he immediately follows it with a warning to stand firm and not become enslaved again to the law which Christ has set us free from. It's worth reminding ourselves here at this point that the freedom Paul describes is freedom from slavery to the law. And that slavery to the law can only lead to sin and death because we can't possibly keep the full law in our own power. If we try and do it on our own power, if we try and fulfill the whole law, we will simply be declared guilty because we can't match up to that standard. But God's gospel is a gospel of grace, of freedom given freely and undeservedly, of replacing the law with his son, giving us his grace, taking the punishment we deserve for not being able to keep the law and granting us our freedom. And there's nothing we can do to increase or diminish our freedom achieved by Christ. But Paul is so aware of the subtle temptations of our world, which can so easily lead us to negate our freedom and get embroiled again in that works-based salvation. That's what the Judaizers are trying to do. They're saying, you need to do this, you need to do that, you need to do this, you need to do that, otherwise you're not truly saved. And he says, in no uncertain terms, if, you're in, if, you, if you listen to the Judaizers, if you let this yeast get through, if you let those lies spread, then you, you've negated the, the sacrifice that Jesus has made for us. He'd die for nothing if you still try and do all these good works to try and gain favor with God. And if we try and justify ourselves by the law, then all we do is alienate ourselves again from Christ. Remember the, the ladder analogy where the law was a train track which we were supposed to follow but the Pharisees turned into this ladder of trying to climb up into, into heaven um, through obedience and it can so easily seep in for different reasons. This obedience, this, this we've got to do this, we've got to do these works, we've got to do these good deeds, we've got to follow this, we've got to follow that. It's a lie. It is a lie. There is nothing that we can do. There's no amount of laws that we can keep that will prove that we are holy before God on our own merit. We don't merit God's favor at all. We don't merit God's forgiveness. We don't merit it at all. We are given it purely because of Jesus' perfection and sacrifice for us. Sometimes there's another kind of lie that sets in as well where we understand that Jesus has died for us. 
We understand that he's given us his grace. We understand that he's freed us. And we feel so blessed and so thankful to Jesus for doing that for us that we feel we've got to repay that debt. That we feel that we need to do as many things as we can, as many good deeds as possible to show Jesus just how thankful we are and show him that we can pay it back. Thanks for doing that, God. I'll, I'll, I'll make it up to you. I'll do all these good things, all these good deeds. And again, it's just a different way of becoming enslaved to good works and good, and good deeds. And it's laughable because we can't ever repay what God has done for us. We can't. There's nothing we could possibly do that will ever match up to the sacrifice that Jesus made for us on that cross. But we get stuck in this place of hard service and good deeds in the false sense that we need to show God just how thankful we are. And he doesn't demand that of us. He wants our love and he wants our worship. He doesn't need our good deeds and our hard work to repay him. Jesus illustrates that really well in the story of Mary and Martha. You remember uh, Martha's hosting a sort of session with Jesus. Jesus is, is speaking to his people. Mary is sat at Jesus' feet, soaking up quality time with her God, with her Savior, with her, her teacher. And Martha is rushing around the house, trying to get everything ready, trying to do all the preparations, trying to keep everyone happy, being a hostess. And she gets really frustrated with Mary. You're just sitting there. You're not doing anything. I'm doing all this hard work. What are you doing? And Jesus says, no, no. Mary has chosen a better path. She's spending time with me. She's enjoying the freedom that I've given you. Come and sit at my feet. Come and listen to me. That's, that's where you're going to get your freedom. I think the biggest problem I have with this Galatian era, this, this, this era of needing to do good works, needing to show how, how great we are, how, how kind we are, how loving we are, how wonderful we are, is that it's a lie that is still there today. It's still here. It's still being um, preached. Um, Barry posted a, uh, an article on his Facebook page recently, and I couldn't believe what I was reading, to be honest. It was an article in the Guardian newspaper, slating David Cameron for a message that he gave at Easter via a Christian radio station. And before I go any further, let me just say, this is not in any way meant to be a party political broadcast. I'm not going to... This has nothing to do with politics. I'm not going to tell you who to vote for or what I think, anything like that. This is purely a theological point. So please vote, whoever, vote for whoever you want to. Maybe not the BNP, but anyone else. <laughs> but what, what David Cameron said, our esteemed prime minister, our highest authority in this country, is this. If you want to click on Tom and see if you can spot the Judaizer, David Cameron, I might have helped you a bit with the red text there. The values of Easter and the Christian religion compassion, forgiveness, kindness, hard work, and responsibility. Easter is all about remembering the importance of change, responsibility, and doing the right thing for the good of our children. And today that message matters more than ever. Now, I don't know about you, but I read that and it made my blood boil. And I think Paul would have had something to say about it too. Because to me, this reduces... Christianity to do-gooders. It reduces Christianity to people who are people of works and deeds and responsibility and hard work. And that's all we are. And yes, there's kindness and compassion and forgiveness. That, that's, that is important too. But they're values that any human being should have. But what he's done there is reduce Christianity to, to being people who do good things. And I think Christianity is much more than that. Now, the throwaway lines from a man who's, who's trying to win your vote and trying to show that he has a soft spiritual side, which, you know, fair play to him. But he is a man of authority, and people listen to what he says, 
And some of this seeps in and becomes truth for people. I must work harder. I must do more. I must show people what a good Christian I am. I must represent Christianity to this world and show them that this is how hard we work. This is all the great stuff we can do. This is what Christianity is about. And it's rubbish. It's rubbish. Christianity, our religion, our faith, is about freedom in Christ. It is freedom in Christ. By grace, through faith, in Christ. First and foremost, first and foremost above anything else, above good deeds, above good works, and we'll come on to those a bit later, but first and foremost, Cameron has missed the point. Cameron has missed the point. It's not about hard work and responsibility. Not first and foremost. And it's frighteningly similar to me, to the Judaizers' gospel, that to be truly saved and truly be called a Christian, we must work hard and do good. You must do this, must do that, must do, must do, must do. But Paul says the opposite. If we try and justify ourselves by the law and work and good deeds, like circumcision and food laws and ritual purity, all those things that the Judaizers were trying to put on the Galatian church, we negate Christ's death for us. We negate Christ's sacrifice. We negate the freedom that he's bought for us. I'll tell you what, as much as I couldn't believe what I was reading with David Cameron, the thing that really made me sit up and notice about the article was the article itself, which was The Guardian's response. Now, The Guardian is probably our most left-leaning liberal newspaper. If you ever go on their website and read an article which has anything to do with Christianity or faith or any other religion, and then you read the comment sections below from the readers, some of the stuff in there is horrific. You know, it's just full of people um, bad-mouthing all all aspects of faith, all aspects of religion. God is awful, God doesn't exist, blah, blah, blah. That is a lot of the readership of The Guardian. But this article was actually a a comment piece. This is the editorial of The Guardian. This is The Guardian saying, this is what we think. And this is what they said in response to David Cameron. The point of the Easter story, and especially of the crucifixion, is that none of these virtues is enough to save us. It is absolutely not a story of virtue rewarded and vice punished but one of virtue scourged and jeered through the streets, abandoned by its friends, and tortured in public to death. What Christianity brought into this world wasn't compassion or kindness or decency or hard work or any of these other respectable virtues, real and necessary as they are. It was the extraordinary idea that people have worth in themselves, regardless of their usefulness to others, regardless even of their moral qualities. And this is the Guardian talk, remember. That is what is meant by the Christian talk of being saved by grace rather than works and by the Christian assertion that God loves everyone, the malformed, the poor, the disabled, and even the foreigner. Amen, Guardian. Preach it, come on. That is so good. I couldn't believe what I was reading. But in your face, Cameron, yeah? That is... The Guardian's got it right there. Cameron has, has not got it right. The gospel in a nutshell is that virtue and good deeds and works and circumcision, all that, they're all well and good. They're good things. Great, lovely. We want to see more of it. But they're not what achieve our salvation. They don't win us our freedom from sin and death. We are free by the fact that Christ, the only sinless one, the only truly virtuous person who ever lived, the only person who's never broken a law in his life, considered us worthy of dying for, and did so. He died on the cross to take the punishment we deserve for all the sins we have ever, ever committed. And that is, that is the message of Christianity. Another quote for you, this time from John Piper. This is the will of God for you, 
your freedom. Uncompromising, unrelenting, indomitable. That means it can't be dominated, it can't be beaten. Freedom. For this Christ died, and for this he rose, and for this he sent his spirit. There is nothing he wills with more intensity under the glory of his own name than this. Your freedom. We've got to beware of those who look to leaders to squander our freedom. For those who look to tell us that we've got to be doing all these good deeds, all these hard works, and that's what makes that's what makes us Christians. It isn't. And Paul's message to those who are trying to inflict circumcision on the Judaizers, you know what? I wish they'd chop the whole lot off. And you can see how David Cameron feels about that. Okay, finally then, living free brings freedom to others. So we've we've talked about freedom is in our DNA. We mustn't squander it. But what do we actually do with our freedom? I'm well aware that in rejecting the notion of Christianity being bound up and identified in good works and deeds, some of you may be thinking, well, what what do we do then? What do we do on a day-to-day basis? How do we show freedom to others? And Paul identifies that too. He, know, he knows that his message was radical and sounded odd to people. What, not, not good works and deeds, not keeping the law. What, what, what do we do? And clearly for some, they took Paul's words as a license to sin. And their minds would have raced away with notions like, wow, freedom, we can do what we want. Sex, drugs, rock and roll. It's all ahead of us. We can do whatever we want, bring it on. But Paul, of course, heads that off at the past, at the past and says, verses uh, 13 to 15, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Freedom isn't to be used to indulge the flesh. Because don't forget, it's indulging the flesh that has driven such a huge wedge between man and God previously. For so many years, it's our sinfulness, our, our desire to please ourselves that has stopped us from having us a relationship with God for so long. And it's only Christ's grace and redemption and, uh, of us and his dying on the cross that means we're free from that sin and we're not being punished for it. So the idea that having been freed by Christ, we can then go back to doing what we would do before, no, that, that doesn't wash. But with Jesus as our master, we're no longer enslaved to the law, which leads us to being declared unrighteous and bound for death. Jesus gives us our freedom. And in response to that, we submit to him, our new master. And we live our lives in a way that glorifies him. And Paul sums that up with the reference to the second commandment. Having chosen Christ, having chosen Christ, we fulfilled the first commandment, which is to love your God with all your heart and all your strength and to have no other gods than him. That's, in choosing Christ, we've done that. That's what we're doing. We've chosen that one. But he also says, in, in living that out, having done that, the second commandment is the most important, which is to love each other, to love one another with all your heart. Love each other as your neighbor. You might feel puzzled there. As Paul talks about freedom being explained in serving each other humbly in love. We've just talked about how good deeds and works are not what Christianity is about. That's not what, that's not what we're here for. How, does, how do we square the two? That it's not about good works and good deeds, but actually we're to serve each other in love, in our, in our freedom. Well, if you're making notes, I'm going to make some fairly rapid fire points here to, to try and explain what he means here. And again, we've got four number ones because my formatting hasn't quite worked there. Never mind. 
But this is how we live out serving each other humbly in love, but also embracing freedom. Number one, serving each other in freedom elevates the receiver and not the server. When we live in freedom, when we serve in love, the goal of our service is not ourselves. It's not our glorification. It's not to show each other how good we are, how holy we are, how spiritual we are, how wonderful we are, and to impress God. It's to bless each other in love, to serve each other, and to elevate the people we're serving. It's a humble service. And that change focus redeems that deed of service, redeems that good deed and work into, from being self-seeking and simple, and sinful, sorry, to being a gracious act of love which reflects Jesus and magnifies Jesus. That's the first thing. Secondly, freedom-based service comes out of the overflow of God's love by the Spirit. When we're in sin, when we're we're not in freedom, when we're not serving in, in Christ's freedom, we're often serving from a place of emptiness. We're serving from a place of our own strength in the hope that in return God will fill us up and bless us and reward us. When we serve in freedom, we're already full of God's blessing. We're already full of God's spirit. When, when we put our faith in Jesus, we're told that God pours his spirit into us to live inside of us. We're full to burst in. In fact, we're full to overflowing. And it's out of that overflow that we are then able to humbly serve and love each other. As Matt preached last week, one of the things the spirit does is help us to recognize that we are sons and heirs we are adopted, we are going to receive the full inheritance of God. And secure in that knowledge and filled up and inspired by that love and that grace in our lives, that is how we can then serve and love each other humbly. Not under our own strength, not in the hope of getting anything back, but out of the overflow of what God has poured out into us. Thirdly, freedom-based service is what Jesus modeled to us. Humbly serving in freedom, Jesus did it every day of his life. Simple deeds like washing the feet of his disciples, cooking them a meal, those sort of things, to the more amazing things he did like healing people, um, forgiving them, casting out demons, serving the people humbly. And of course, most importantly, he served us in his death, dying for our sins, taking our punishment for us. And in 2 Corinthians 8, we're told that as Christians, we are constantly being transformed into Christ-likeness as we continue our walk with him. And therefore, our humble service and love to each other is part of the freedom in Christ package. As we grow to be more like Jesus, we grow to do more things like he did. Jesus modeled humble service, and as we become more like him, we'll do more of that as well in freedom. And finally, service... Freedom-based service is not about keeping score. We know already that we are set free. We are accepted, we are forgiven, we are loved by God. Our salvation is secure. No matter how many good deeds, how many acts of service and kindness we do. If you are serving on the coffee rotor and that's all you do, that's fine. If you're doing 20 things in church, you're no more loved and accepted by God than the person who's doing nothing. Hear that this morning. 
We are free. We are under grace. We are saved. We are set free. And it's not about how many things and keeping a score of all the ways we serve to try and earn more of God's love. We can't do anything more. So do you see where we've got to? That doing good works and deeds isn't bad in itself. But trying to use that as a basis for our worth and value and salvation is a huge error. And once we realize this, and we accept that we are saved purely by grace through faith in Christ, it frees us up completely to serve and bless others in an entirely different way. And then we come back to our vision and Paul's famous quote, freedom, for freedom Christ set us free. And in living free, we are then able to bring freedom to others. Christ set us free so that we will be free indeed. And in our freedom, we will be a blessing to others if we grasp this. If we grasp it and we serve out of the overflow of the freedom God has poured out in us, we will bless others. That is the reason we're here, church, in Liverpool. Because we've been freed by Christ from our lives of slavery to sin. And as we live out those free lives, we will affect this city and bring even more people into the freedom that we know ourselves. So to recap, freedom is in our blood. Freedom can be easily lost if we're not careful uh, about the subtle undermining of it. But as we live in freedom, we bring it to others. And in closing this morning, I just feel it'd be good to pray for maybe three groups of people this morning, if, if you want to respond to this this morning. Firstly, if you're like Brooks this morning, the guy from the Shawshank Redemption, and you don't know the freedom that Christ has won for you, if you're going through life just trying to be a good person, trying to do good deeds in the hope that someday you'll be free and you'll be in heaven or, or whatever it is you think, and you haven't understood the gospel, you haven't heard that Jesus loves you in spite of who you are and what you've done and anything you will do or have done in the past, then maybe this morning it's time to step into that freedom. The Bible tells us that all of us sin and fall short of the glory of God. That all of us, without Jesus, are destined for judgment by God where we will find that we have not measured up to his standards. But God in his grace provides a way to be saved, provides a way spend eternity with Christ and be free so if that's you this morning if you want to know more about that if you want to understand that more if you want to take that step of trusting in Jesus and knowing that you are free indeed because of him I'd love to pray for you this morning it's a simple step it's not a it's not a deed or a word or a heart or a piece of hard work it's a simple step of putting your trust in Jesus and saying yes thank you for dying for me thank you for your sacrifice I want to know the freedom that you offer to me Second group of people, if there's anyone here who wants to be prayed for this morning, what I would say are, are tired Marthas. You know and you love Jesus, but you're well and truly caught up in the busyness of life and you're missing the freedom that comes from simply sitting at his feet in worship and prayer and adoration of him. And you may be feeling tired and frustrated and maybe empty and cross, and this morning it's just an opportunity for you to be refilled with God's spirit, with God's freedom, and to regain that ability to serve humbly out of the overflow, not out of the emptiness. If that's you this morning, again, we'd love to pray for you this morning. And finally, 
if there's anyone here who's got all this, you understand it. You're free. You're enjoying it. You're walking in that freedom. You're living in freedom. And you've got the whole serving humbly. You're loving it. It's all there. But what you're missing is you don't feel like it's bringing freedom to anyone else. And you're frustrated. And you want to see something happen. You want to see some fruit of, of, of that bringing freedom. You want to see freedom. You've got people on your heart. You're just desperate to see saved. You're desperate to see them come and know that freedom. But for, try as you might, whatever you're doing, you're not seeing it happen. And you're frustrated and you're tired. And again, I'd love to pray for you for more of God's freedom for you and more of God's heart for you. So I wonder, Steve, if you could come up and maybe just uh, play a song for us. And if, any, if you want to respond to any of those points, please do come forward as we worship and, and we finish this morning. We'd love to pray for you, Chris and Tor, and anyone else would like to come and help pray for people. That would be fantastic. Let me just pray for us as we finish. Lord God, I thank you that we are free indeed. That there is nothing you want more for us than our freedom to love you and to know you that you've brought us into a relationship with you through your son, Jesus Christ. We, we revel in that freedom, Lord God. We ask this morning that you'll fill us up to bursting once again, to overflowing, Lord, so that we can live out that freedom in a way that brings freedom to others. Lord, we reject any notion of us being bound up in good works in order to prove our identity, in order to prove our holiness. Lord, we reject that, Lord. And we just accept once again this morning your free gift of grace, which allows us to go on and live a life with you in freedom. Just pray this morning, Lord, if there's anyone who wants to respond to those words this morning, Lord, who wants to come and receive some prayer, Lord, I just pray you'll give them uh, grace and courage as we minister to them now. And we ask that as we go about this week, Lord, you will help us to live out our freedom in ever more amazing ways. Amen.